Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look unto, into these things. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy, because I am holy. Since you call on a Father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Thank you, Dale. For those of you who are new with us and have your scriptures along, we are preaching from 1 Peter. And that was verses 10 through 17. Let me reacquaint you with the last two Sundays. The first Sunday we preached about the audience to whom Peter was writing. And that was the elect. And then Peter right away began to give them the secret of endurance, or a secret of endurance. Part of what they could hang on to in time of trouble because these were persecuted Christians. Now... I want you to see the turn of the letter after just a word about their heavenly treasure and what they can draw upon when they face persecution. Peter right away begins to explain to them how they need to get ready for more. That you cannot hide in endurance. The Bible does not give you that permission. So he goes back to the prophets and he says, I want you to see how the prophets searched diligently and searched um, um, and made careful search and inquiry. I'm reading from the New American Standard this time. Careful search and inquiry seeking God's will. He hearkens them back to a time of their ancestors when their ancestors were not lazy about their spirituality, even though the secret that they were discovered was not for them themselves. So he says, one of the ways that I want you to avoid being hurt in the future is to not get lazy, to not take that heavenly treasure for granted, but to prepare yourselves to get ready for something else, not to give up that diligent seeking You've got to have that attitude of looking forward to the future, expecting something, getting ready for something else. Let me tell you, and this is not going to be very popular on the 4th of July weekend, but let me tell you a mistake that America made right after World War II. Right after World War II, everybody came home and we had our industrial base intact because we had fought overseas. So none of our factories were destroyed. All of our workforce was there. We have virtually 17 years of pent-up consumer demand 
Consumers had not had what they wanted since the Depression in 1929, and so the market was there, and so everything was easy. There wasn't a lot of quality control to be done because everybody wanted everything all at once, and we had the resources to produce. But a decision that we made, if not an overt decision, a, a covert decision, the decision that we made was to be satisfied with haphazard manufacturing because the demand was there and it seemed that no matter how we produced goods, it was, they were always consumed. And what we did was we got fat and lazy as a country. Um, we did not want to explore further. Re our research and development uh, parts were like that big in the, in, the, in the 50s, in the early 60s, because we thought we had it made. We were America. We were the greatest nation on earth. Who would question us? We had God on our side, you see. And what happened was that we just shut down our minds to further growth. We didn't get ready for the future. A man named George Duvall created what he called an artificial uh, article manipulating device, what we call a robot. He went to every, practically every major corporation in America. None of them would take him out because they already had it made, you see. None of them would invest in this. He finally went to a corporation in Japan by the name of Kawasaki. And because they bought that, today they have 45% of the market of robotics. And because they have 45% of the market of robotics, their manufacturing error margin is so much slimmer than ours. From the years 1976 to the years 1980, the recall on their automobiles was 14%. The recall on American automobiles was 33%. You know how many millions of dollars that is? Why? Because in the 1950s, we decided we had it made and we didn't need to prepare for the future. Let me give you a couple more statistics and draw, draw a conclusion from it. In Japan, there, are, there is one attorney for every 10,000 people. I waited until Marv Brooks was out of town to say this. In America, there are 20 attorneys for every 10,000 people. There are 9,000 more attorneys in the state of Florida than there are in the whole country of Japan. Now hold on to that just for a second. In Japan, there are three accountants for every 10,000 people. In America, there are 40 accountants for every 10,000 people. Now hold on to that for a second. One more statistic. In America, there are 70 engineers for every 10,000 people. In Japan, there are 400 engineers for every 10,000 people. Now, one of the conclusions that you can draw from those statistics is this. We have geared ourselves as a country to divvying up what we got and managing what we got and counting what we got rather than figuring out how we can do something new. Because that's what an engineer supposedly does. Figures out how you can do something new. You see how we're geared as a country? Why? Because at one time in our 
development as a country, we lost the pioneer spirit. We thought we had it made, and now, folks, we're suffering for it. We cry out, oh, those, those Japanese, they just don't fight fair. Wait a minute. We kamikazed ourselves. We got fat and lazy. And let me tell you something. Peter is saying the same thing happens to a Christian. When you are suffering persecution, the worst thing you can do is to lay back and think about all of your heavenly treasures. What does he say you got to do? You got to prepare for the future. You got to gird up your loins. And I'll tell you what that, is, what that means in just a second. Well, let me do it right now. He gives, you, he gives you a formula, a formula. This is a formula from Peter. Now, let me caution you here. Anytime you hear a preacher say, this is the biblical formula for such and such, I want you to take that with a grain of salt. Because in no one part of the Bible is the formula for any part of life. That's why we need the entire Bible. But he does give you a formula, his formula, for preparing for the future. And this is what he says. He says, therefore, gird your minds for action. That's number one. Gird your minds for action. Now, the picture here is that, that the dress back there was a, was a long flowing robe, and you couldn't move about very handily in it. And so when people wanted to work or when they wanted to move fast, they had these girdles that fit around here, these wide belts, and they would take the robes up and they would fit those robes through those belts and make themselves a pair of shorts, toga shorts. And then they could move fast, they could move quick. And what he's saying is you gotta gird up your minds for action. The first thing you gotta do, if you are suffering, if you are in persecution, is read the world just like it is, and that is that the world is not gonna let up on you. You gotta prepare for further challenge. You gotta be ready for fast action. One of the best books I ever read, if not the best, is by a Dr. Scott Peck. He's a psychiatrist, and it's called The Road Less Traveled. And his entire thesis is that life is a series of problems, and you can choose to face them and lick them, or solve them, which creates wisdom and maturity, or you can try to avoid them, which creates mental illness. And avoiding problems eventually becomes much tougher than facing the problems you have. What he's saying is you got to gird up your minds for action. Did you ever go into one of those pizza places? Uh, um, I took the family into one of those, uh, what, are they, what are they called? Showbiz. Showbiz, that's it. Showbiz Pizza. I noticed you got one out here on 436. And got a bunch of coins for the kids. And after I divvied them all up equally, I had one left. And I thought maybe I'd play one of those dudes. So I stepped up to this thing that had a mallet. You ever seen one of those? Had a mallet. You put the coin in, and a gopher head comes up. And you hit the gopher head. And as soon as you hit the gopher head, it comes up over here. Then you try to hit that gopher head, but he's already done because there's one over there. And I stood there like an idiot. And first I was frustrated out of my mind. You know, the veins stand out on your neck. And you're just trying to hit those things as they come up. And then I got to laugh. And I was laughing so hard I could hardly stand up because I couldn't hit one of those gopher heads to save, you know, it was just ridiculous. My score was like 15 or something like that out of 5,000. But I thought, man, what an illustration of life. That's what life is. Life is gopher heads. <laughs> you can quote me on that. You can quote me. Listen, all life is is a gopher head game. 
Every time you think you know where a problem's coming up, it comes up over here. And you, your job is to try and bat, and by the time you get over there, there's another one over here. And anybody, honest, anybody who looks at life any differently is going to be disgusted and frustrated. Because that's what life is. Life is gopher heads that are springing up all over the place, and you've got to gird your minds for action. That's what the Bible says. Because it knows that anytime you schedule something, anytime you dream about something that is going to go just right, you're in for a surprise. You've got to gird your minds for action. Don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep because as soon as you fall asleep, you're in trouble. Don't plan on God's interrupting your problems because He gave you the mallet. All right? Go for head, world. Second, he says, keep sober in spirit. Keep sober in spirit. Now, the Greek word for sober is nepho, which means free from intoxicants. Now, you all know about lemon-faced Christians, don't you? They get to go like this all the time about life, and they kind of screw their face up, and anytime you try and laugh, they're going to go... That's not sober. That's not what the, the Bible means by sober. The Bible means by sober that you can concentrate on what you're supposed to do and that your mind is free from anything that would cloud up what you're supposed to be doing or what you're supposed to be working on. I got my first Florida ticket last week. Just minding my own business, driving down through the addition. And I look in, and I'm listening to John MacArthur on the radio. John MacArthur is a Bible teacher out of California. Listen to him. He's got some good stuff on there. Look in my rearview mirror, and I see these lights, and I'm thinking, oh, no, this is horrible. I haven't even got my Florida license yet. You know, I, I, I get three. So I pull over the side, and I get out of my car and walk back to the police car. Don't ever do that. Don't ever do because they think you're coming back to argue with them. This was a police woman who had watched one too many uh, uh, police woman uh, shows. I mean, she thought she was on Magruder and Loud or something. She came storming out of her car, and I came back and I said, what do I do? Because I knew I wasn't speeding. She goes, give me your license and your registration. I'll tell you what you did. You could tell she just wanted to pull her revolver and say, up against the car, spread them out, spread them out. She was just, oh, she was just foaming at the mouth. But anyhow, I said, well, okay, okay. And so I gave her my license, my registration. I said, she, I said, now what I do? She said, you ran a stop sign. I said, I didn't see a stop sign. She said, that was obvious. You didn't even slow down for it. She was already, she was just thick at her hand like that. So I walked back to the car and sat down. And I kind of fussed with God. I was saying, God, here I am listening to a radio program entitled Grace to You. <laughs> and I'm getting a ticket. I said, There's not, it doesn't seem just to me. But see, the spiritual message is I wasn't sober in spirit. I wasn't paying attention to what I was supposed to be doing. Now, this brings up another point. Do you know that your attention can be diverted by something good as well as by something bad? Us Christians go around real proud because we think that Anytime we do something good, that's what we need to be doing. But let me tell you, when I come into the office and I'm saying my morning prayers and the Spirit's saying to me, you need to go be reconciled to Mrs. X because Mrs. X is mad at you 
And I decided I'm going to get deep in the Word today and do nothing but read Scripture. I'm not keeping sober in spirit. God doesn't want me to read the Bible at that moment. God wants me to go do what I'm supposed to do, as unpleasant as it is, and not to be diverted by something no matter how good it is. Now, when God is laying something on your heart, there's going to be all kinds of alternatives that come to you, some of them real good ones. But Scripture is saying the way you prepare for problems is that you concentrate on what you're supposed to be doing and don't get diverted from any form of intoxicant, whether that be praise songs. You know, I'd much rather just stick around and get high on praise songs and go do my work. Or that be some form of worldly intoxicant. And there are plenty of those I like to listen to, too. Okay? So it says, the second part of, keep sober in spirit. Now, concentrate on what you're supposed to do. And that way, no matter what happens, you'll be able to see it instead of a thousand other issues. Then the Bible says this. Fix your hope on the grace. Now look at the form of the verb in there. The grace to be brought. Now say that in your mind. To be brought. You know, I hear a lot of Christians who start whining at God because they don't feel like they've got enough grace to face the problems they're going to have to face. The scripture clearly says to fix your hope completely on the grace you don't have yet. It is grace that God will give you when you need it. He's not going to give it to you ahead of time. Corey Ten Boom tells about a time when she was a little girl and she was supposed to take a train someplace and she was afraid. She was afraid God wouldn't get her through it. And she talked to her father about it. And, she, and her father said, Corey, let me ask you something. Would I buy you the tickets for that train three weeks before you were supposed to get on the train? Corey said, no, of course not. He said, why not? Well, she said, I might lose them or I might use them for something I wasn't supposed to or they, something might happen to them. He said, that's right. When it's time for you to get on that train, I'm going to buy the ticket, I'm going to hand it to you, and then I'm going to watch you get on the train. He said, God is the same way with grace. He said, God does not give you what you need until you need it. Because what would we do with it? We'd misuse it, wouldn't we? We'd get proud and boastful. If we all started out with enough grace to complete life, I don't know about you, but by the time I was 15, I would have shot all the grace I had. God treats us like children who need to continue to come back to Him. Our spirituality is a lot like vitamin C. You know, you can't store it up. You need to get a daily supply because your body uses it as it is put in. Grace is like that. God will continue to put it in because He wants you to continue to use it. I remember we used to, we used to give uh, um, our kids uh, offerings, their offerings for the for the uh, Sunday school um, 
classes at the beginning of the morning. And every time, by the time they got out the first door, where, you got your offering? No, I haven't got my offering. Where is it? I don't know. Somewhere. So we'd have to give them another. Got so that we'd finally give them their offering right before they were supposed to go in the room because then they could lose it in the room at least over at the church before what we heard of us was Isaac always came out with more money than we gave him. That's we didn't know we didn't know what was happening there, but no, just a couple of times he did that. He's sitting down there going, I didn't do that. But anyhow, you see you see the principle of the thing. How you prepare for something is to fix your hope on the grace that God is going to give you, not the grace you already have, not the strength you already have, not the direction you already have. It's to step out in faith and trust that when you put your weight on that foot, God is going to be there supporting that step. Okay. Fourth principle of readiness is do not be conformed to former lusts. Now, this is something that's real hard for Christians to learn. But let me say it once and write this on the tablet of your heart. Anytime you have a sin that you enjoy and you have overcome it with the grace that has been brought, I do not want you to imagine for one second that that sin is gone. Old sins never die. They just hibernate. They just hibernate. If you have enjoyed that once, chances are what is going to happen is that that is going to spring out at you. It might not be a temptation right now in your life, but you wait until you get in one of two situations. Either you get unexpected stress and watch what you want to do, or you get fat and lazy and watch what you want to do. Remember David in the Bible? Remember how he got involved with Bathsheba? He was just kind of tooling around the palace one day while, now listen, his men were out fighting. See, he had gotten fat and lazy. He had decided that he didn't need to, he could delegate from now on. He didn't need to perform that or that general stuff. Watch that old sin wake up and come at you again. And don't let it surprise you. Don't be intimidated by that, please. Because that's how everybody has to face it. We had a lady in the old country, back in Indiana, who had the most wonderful testimony about how God had uh, um, told her to give up cigarettes. And boy, it was, it was thrilling. You could listen to that and you knew it was the Spirit of God. I mean, he changed the smoke six different colors. He spoke in her heart, you know, I want you to throw those cigarettes away. Man, she'd stood up, she even stood up in church and said, boy, this, you can't believe what God did to me. And, and, and everybody's going, oh, praise God. That was so great. Didn't smoke for four years and had a powerful testimony on how God had given her a particular witness. They ran into a problem that they were not prepared for. And she had an unbelievable amount of stress in her life. And I am not selling her short. And believe me, I'm not accusing her of anything. Because I might have done the same thing in the same situation. 
I am nobody to be calling anybody a backslider. But it was interesting that the first and only habit she picked up in reaction to that stress was that cigarette habit again. And because she had stood up in front of the entire body and she had told them that God had told her to quit, guess what she gave up? Worship. She was so ashamed she couldn't come back. I mean, she would have been loved. Everybody would have been able to say, hey, believe me, you know, I've done worse than that or, you know. But in her heart, she was so condemned. What she had thought was something dead in her was something that came very much alive. So when the Bible says, do not be conformed to former lust, it knows what it's talking about. It's talking about the structure of who we are. And things that you like to do in your ignorance, you will also like to do in your intelligence. Don't fall back into them. Two more. The Bible says, be holy. Now, before you get too theological about this, let's just talk about what holiness is. And, and someday I'll preach a whole bunch of sermons, I, I think, I hope, on holiness. But just the word itself, hagaios, the Greek word means separated, different. And what the Bible is saying here is when you face stress, you can't take your hints from anybody else. That's a big, a, a big market of books these days is how do you handle stress? I mean, they've got seminars on it. They've got books on it. Everybody goes and it's, there's all kinds of how-tos about handling stress. Now, some of those are okay because they're kind of helpful. But if you put your confidence in those seminars and your confidence in those books, guess what you're not going to be putting your confidence in? God gives you individual stress. He doesn't give me stress like he gives it to you. And he doesn't give you stress like he gives it to me. And the only one that can ultimately be responsible for my stress is my God. If I take it to him as an individual, then he shows me how to handle it and gives me, what, the grace that he promised. God says, be holy, be different, be separated. That's not, that's not our first inclination. Our first inclination says, well, everybody else does it like this. Remember when you were a kid and you wanted to do something? And what was the first thing you said? Mom, everybody does this. And I'd go up to my mother and I'd say, Mom, everybody's doing this. And my mother would say the same thing to me every time. She'd look at me. She'd draw herself up from five foot one to five foot one and a half. And she'd say, Joel, you are not everybody. You are a hunter. And hunters do not do that. And I'd draw myself up from four three to four three and a half. And I'd kind of walk off like this. I was so proud. Never once did I ask her what a hunter was or what difference that ever made. <laughs> I mean, but somehow she made me feel holy, different. Like I didn't need to make my, take my cues from everybody else. And it's the same way in the adult world when you realize you're different. Because you belong to somebody who is separated and high and above all that stuff. You don't need to take your cues from anybody else. 
when you, when you are tempted to hedge on your income tax. Now, I used to say cheat. And everybody used to say, I don't cheat. I would never cheat. Let me say, when you are tempted to hedge on your income tax. Because everybody else hedges on their income tax. And then you begin to estimate your probability of a, what do you call that thing when they come check you out? An audit, that's right. And you try to figure out what your, what your potential is for an audit. Let me tell you, as a child of God, your potential for an audit is 100%. Because every time you fill out that form, you are what? Being audited, aren't you? Yeah. You can't take your hint from anybody else. What God is saying to you is that I'm the only one you have to pay attention to ultimately in this situation. You can pick up some helpful stuff, and I'm going to preach a little bit more about this two weeks from now. You can pick some helpful stuff up from other people, but don't go to anybody but me to be ready for what you're going to face ultimately. And then one more point. It says, conduct yourselves in fear. Now, let's talk about fear for a minute. The Bible also goes through 800 times of saying, fear not, fear not, don't be afraid, God is with thee, so on and so forth. Right here it says, conduct yourselves in fear. Let me just share with you <clears throat> something you probably already know. There are two kinds of fear in the Bible. This kind is a sign of discernment and maturity. Let me ask you why you don't give your kids loaded guns. It's because they don't fear them enough. They've watched on TV. They've seen the old westerns. They would go out and start shooting anything, shooting apples off each other's heads, probably. Why? Because they don't have the kind of fear they ought to have. There is a place for fear when fear is a discernment. And sometimes God is waiting for us to get enough fear about what we have and about what we do before He's going to give us what He wants to give us. He wants us to have a godly awe, a godly respect, almost a fear. Every, let me tell you something, every Saturday, I told this yesterday to Jeff and Dee, every Saturday I am practically a basket case. Inside, I shake. I am so afraid because of what's coming on Sunday morning. I feel, I, I just can't describe it to you. And for 15 years, I've been waiting for that to go away. Every Saturday, my wife says, are you mad at me? And then she'll catch herself and she'll say, oh, no, it's Saturday, isn't it? She knows I am afraid because of what has been given me to interpret. And I hope I never lose that fear because when God gives you something powerful to share, He wants you to have a godly fear. He wants you to have discernment. And discernment's not the only issue. 
there's also an amount of energy that comes with fear that you don't get any other way. Now, you all look pretty like I'm weighing you down here. Let me tell you a little joke. You probably already heard this. It's about a guy out digging a grave, and he had one of those big things and dug the grave and dug it real deep, and then turned around, stepped back for some reason, and fell in the grave. All afternoon, he tried to get out of that grave. He tried yelling. There was nobody else out there. Nobody could hear him. Tried yelling. Tried everything. Getting out of that grave. Finally, he just sat down in the corner of that grave, just thought, I'm just going to sit here. Night came, and it was dark. And there was one inebriated soul in the town who decided he would take a shortcut through the cemetery. And as God would have it, he came upon that open grave, fell smack dab in the bottom of that open grave, got up, trying to crawl out, didn't notice the guy's dark, didn't notice the other guy in there with him, tried for five minutes to climb those walls. And finally, he stood there panting, and he heard this voice, you'll never get out of here. <laughs> but he did! Fear has a use. It does. It does. Hey, I'm for it. God... <laughs> God can give you energy through fear and get your attention sometimes in fear. Now, fear is not a permanent state, but there are some instances. When I was getting my ticket, I was sitting in the car, listening to that Bible program. I wasn't afraid of the money I was going to waste, although that made me sick. I was afraid of the people who were going by. Chuck Green of Orangewood Presbyterian drove by. I almost creamed my chin dipping down under the steering wheel. It's true. I was afraid of being seen, and it's because of that fear that I will notice the stop signs now where I live. Fear is a good thing. When used periodically and for righteous purposes. And the Bible says, conduct yourselves in fear. Let me say one more word. Fear of God is not a fear of God's personality. Fear of God is not is is a is a way of of feeling because you want to please him so bad and you're afraid that he won't be absolutely thrilled with what you've done. When we were first married, I'm talking too long here, aren't I? When we were first, just one more story, and then I'll quit. When we were first married, I didn't plan on telling this. Um, we were really into this, you know, uh, husband and wife, you know, doing just the right thing for each other and all that kind of stuff. We really wanted to do it right. And I came into the kitchen one night, and Beck and I sat down, and boy, it was a candlelight dinner. And I, I'm not much for candlelight dinners. I'm just kind of show a spotlight on it so I can see everything and I don't miss anything. But it was a candlelight dinner. I knew it was a special thing. And Beck had baked homemade bread. Everything was gorgeous. And... I reached over and I picked up the bread and broke it and the middle just oozed out on the thing. <laughs> and I looked at her and like an idiot, I said, hey, the bread isn't done. 
And she started crying and running out of the room. Oh, I felt so bad. I would have eaten. I said, I'll, I'll suck it up with a straw. I'll do anything I can do to repent. You know, it's not that big a deal. But see, what she was doing was that she was afraid that she wasn't going to please me as much as she wanted to please me. She wasn't afraid of me. I wasn't going to beat her up if the bread was bad. But she had an inner desire to please me and I her. Now, when the Bible says, conduct yourselves in fear, that's what it means. That you want to please God so badly that it's just going to crush you if you don't. And that is part of your preparation for getting ready for future stress and things that could go wrong. Part of what you want to keep in mind that through all of this, I'm going to gird up my mind for action and I'm going to please God no matter what comes. Now listen to this song and then we'll close. A decision to follow Christ for the first time or something that you're facing in your life that you would like for some other Christian just to be with you and pray with you and love you about, we'd love to do that for you and with you. So I make that invitation on behalf of a caring, loving body. Let us pray. Go with us now, Holy Spirit, and indwell our hearts and prepare us for what you have this week. And as we face those things that you direct us to face, we know that you will give us the grace and the direction and the wisdom and the strength to face them in a sufficient way to be pleasing to you. That's what we want to do. We want to be pleasing to you. We want you to be proud of us. And so we ask you to go with us and help us with those things that we can't handle alone and help us to love and support one another in our mutual struggles together as Christians. We pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.